Good morning. It's that contractor again. So I can help but notice that giving's always down when I speak. I don't understand that because we take the money before I start talking. And then I seen anyone ask for a refund on the way out yet. So I don't get, can't get my mind around that. But uh, I need to start this morning by saying that, that teaching is quite difficult for me. I don't mind being up front. This part's the easy part. It's all the preparation and the study that's really tricky for me. And I average about one hour of study for every minute I talk. And that's a lot. <laughs> but that's the way God made me. So um, uh, I don't ever um, intend to, uh, you know, handling the, the truth of God's word is a, is a high bar because teachers are held in a, a little more accountable. And I, I realize that. That's why I spend a little more time. But um, it's... Uh, Interestingly, in my study uh, yesterday morning, I, I discovered something I've never noticed about myself before, and I'm going to try to make some adjustments this morning, and that is that of that time I spent in study, a good 25% of that time is spent trying to whittle down big chunks of God's truth into bite-sized pieces so we don't choke on it. And I don't know if that's always the right thing to do. I gave it a name, Christian Political Correctness. And uh, and I have that lesson. Most folks already know that, but it's still a factor. So what I'm going to try to do this morning is blend wisdom and some larger chunks at the same time, and hopefully find a sweet spot in there. Might even kick your dog this morning a little bit, and and uh, that's just a figure of speech. I'm not kicking your dog. <clears throat> with the deification of animals these days. That's always scary to say stuff like that. But just let you know, I have a dog. I have pets. I have a dog at home. His name is Ezekiel Gritz Curson. We've had him for about nine years, maybe 10 years. Previous dog was Jonah Sweetheart Curson. The cat we have is Navidad Poutine Blackfish Curson. My kids name these things, by the way. And our previous cat was Combo Platter Curson. <clears throat> we... I love my dog. He's a fantastic dog. Uh, he's going to be very hard to replace. I actually, I think he's irreplaceable. He's a farm dog, and uh, sheep aren't allowed in the house, so he's, he's bored most of the time, so I have to play with him quite a bit. And, uh, but he's probably the smartest, uh, sweetest, very kind dog. But all that said, <clears throat> I didn't get him by prescription. I'm never going to be a grandfather to a dog. A dog that does not complete me. Uh, he doesn't need to call me. <laughs> He's not my child. He's not my baby. And I'll never have grand dogs. So <clears throat> if um, that just gives you a sense of where we're going today, just a little, little bite right there. Uh, for example, if God uh, were driving a car in front of you today, I don't think it'd say, I love my corgi on the back of it. It'd say, I love you. People are far more important. I think we lose sight of that a little bit. So I want to throw that out there. Our text for this morning is John chapter 9, if you can turn there real quick. Lord, let's lift up this time to you this morning, um, and I just pray that uh, with the expectation, Lord, we just hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> We're going to talk about the man born blind. So John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, it says, And as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not this man that he sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
Uh, I often hear teachers speak of unnecessary chapter breaks, and sometimes I get that and sometimes I don't, but this is as obvious as it gets. Uh, chapter 9 and chapter 10 are entirely about this man born blind. They flow perfectly together. Everything hinges on this man. Uh, so the disciples are walking by and they ask Jesus, what did this guy do or what did his parents do? Because that is um, something that uh, they wanted to understand because the thought process at that time and earlier is a thing called what we call retribution dogma. And that's the notion that all um, adversity in life comes from personal sin, personal choices you've made. And, um, and Jesus kind of blew that up a little bit. And he said, neither, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's a ton to unpack here just in this first three verses. Like, first of all, how did the disciples know he's born blind from birth? Uh, all I can guess is that he probably was saying that as he was begging. The second is, is, and this is kind of funny, but the disciples really believe that he sinned before he was born? Because that was one of their questions. That was half of the question. In this retribution dogma, retribution dogma theory, um, Job's friend all assumed that too. You see that in Job throughout most of the book where all of his friends were coming to him saying, listen, just confess it. What'd you do wrong? You can get this thing right with God. He'll restore you, but you got to confess your sin. And Job is, what did I do? I didn't do anything. And so it's not uncommon. And, and we know there are definite consequences for sin, for poor life choices. But what do you do with the family that's killed by a drunk driver? You know, the children didn't serve alcohol to that driver. They didn't deserve that. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. And, and these are super hard concepts to get our mind around. But now we run into the man born blind. What did he do? Why is he blind and not the kid next door? Why are we not all blind here this morning? I read multiple commentaries on this passage. And I'll tell you, I discovered something I have never seen before. And it... it, it it's changing my study habits somewhat, and I'm going to share that with you this morning. Most of the commentaries I read, they tidy this passage up very nicely with the common agreement that all sin is derived from a fallen world. Birth defects, adversities, often tied to sinful acts by parents, but sometimes it's just the fact we live in a fallen world. I mean, Adam launched this mess, and we all live in it, and I get that. That's good. But here's what I discovered that fascinated me. There was an exception to this tidy wrap-up. That exception came from commentators who were dead. Old guys. I think that's significant. What is the difference between a dead commentator and a live commentator? The early, earlier um, group that was in here, I, you know, it kind of sounded like an intro to a joke, like two commentators walk into a bar, and that's not where I'm going with that. Dead commentators seem to have no issue with God's sovereignty. Modern commentators, they want to throw a general blanket over it, tuck in the corners, and, and move on. And the significance in my, in my limited theological training and mental capacity is that this appears to me to be subtle cultural pushback. <clears throat> it's not overwhelming, it's subtle. But we know the stream of culture runs deep and fast. And the closer you are to the center of it, the less attention you draw to yourself. That phenomenon can be seen in a river. If you notice that you go down and look at a river, that oftentimes you'll see a very light object, maybe a piece of stick or a leaf that floats upstream on the edge. Have you ever seen that? It's fascinating. I got to see that with a snake one time. I had the Kirsten family at a river in Oregon, 
And uh, they were all playing out there. Stacy's on the shore, and the uh, snake started swimming towards her. And she panicked out loud. And my girls went insane. And, uh, but for me, it was, there was opportunity, because <laughs> I'm a boy. So seizing the opportunity, I quickly found a phone booth, emerged with my cape, and I began to throw rocks at this snake. And, and I was in my natural habitat because I, I pitched uh, in college in baseball, and I'm a boy, and boys love to throw rocks at any age. But I w it would say, um, and I mean, how can you plan a more glorious moment? You've got damsels, damsels in distress, and you've got rocks. It's, it's as good as it gets. <laughs> I wanted nothing more than to strike a pose over the slain serpent. But it didn't work out that way. I was quickly reminded why I pitched at junior college, not a university, because I kept missing the snake. And not only was I missing it, I was hitting behind it, which drove it to my wife faster. <clears throat> she was screaming, looking at me like, can you please kill this snake? And I failed. I'm not even sure how it died, honestly. I think Stacy had to kill it. But, <laughs> but just the same, I grabbed the snake by the tail and threw it in the middle of the river and watched it float downstream and assured my girls that we were fine. Not 15 minutes later, that snake, dead, is making its way up the side of the bank. And it gets between me and Andrea. And she is screaming loud. And, um, but I was so fascinated by the thing going upstream, I just had to pause. <laughs> <laughs> I was a young father. So I was torn between the awesomeness of seeing the snake float upstream, which made no sense to me, and the need to rescue my daughter. And I did the right thing eventually, and, and I threw it downstream again and got my daughter and cleaned her up. And, uh, but all this to say, it's fascinating to watch something happen that doesn't make sense like that. So my dead commentators lived in an area where you would assign to God rain or lack thereof for your crops. You'd cry out to him in drought. You'd praise him at harvest time. They lived in an area when your family actually rested on a Sabbath day. Good old days. But they also rode horses and died of cholera. And I really like driving to church this morning. I put on deodorant and I don't want polio. So I'm grateful for advances. But at the end of the day, childlike simplicity of trusting the Lord does not come as easy. Thank you, culture. You have to purpose to float upstream. <laughs> you have to purpose to take your family upstream. And it's no different than it was in the first century. Some of the issues are different, but the principles do not change. At the end of the day, cultural, culture hates biblical Christianity with a passion. Cultural Christianity, that's fine. We can coexist, but not biblical. Biblical Christianity changes culture, and it doesn't always end well. And for the church in general, Christianity is a hard sell if we get too far out of the middle of the stream. We have to be very careful that we're not so desperate, and I hate these words, sell, our faith to an unbelieving world that we make adjustments to make Jesus more palatable. And I think to some degree the church in general looks at God's word and the authority of his word through the lens of culture. There are two cultural hot buttons you can push today that will start a fight like none other. One's abortion, and the other one's anything sexual, whether it be homosexuality, gender identity, you name it. If you want to fight like none other, find a public platform, stand up for biblical definition of marriage, or stand up for a voiceless child who cannot escape his mother's womb to save himself. On a side note, if you're hearing my voice today and you've had an abortion, you've repented, you are free. Drop the chains. You are not condemned. But I can't not talk about it in fear of offending you. I have to speak the truth. And part of that truth, sister, is that you're new. 
and God does not condemn you. So continuing on that side note, I have yet ever to hear or read anyone who completes the biblical definition of marriage. Ever. The biblical definition that you'll hear on most accounts is one man, one woman. I believe the true biblical definition is one man, one woman for life. We tend to leave the life part out because 50% of us have had a divorce. It's not comfortable. It's not politically correct. And I, I believe it again, it's a power culture somehow that encourages us to take the four life off of that. And, and I'm more there biblical, are there provisions for, for divorce biblically? I get that. I get that. But it was never God's intent. Never. It was always for life. It's a hardness of heart that makes that provision available. Again, like divorce, if you've, had an, uh, if you've been divorced, like abortion, not the unpardonable sin, you're not condemned. If you're struggling in your marriage this morning, when the scripture says that two become one, it's not a fight to see which one of the two you become. That's not what it works like. Think of it like this. Do two become one, that one person's different. It's like getting a camel through the eye of a needle. It can be done, but that camel's not going to look the same by the time you get him through that needle. <laughs> My point is this. I don't want people to recognize me from 32 years ago. I want them to recognize us. As I decrease and Christ increases, as my wife decreases and Christ increases in her life, we, be, we begin to look like him as one. That's the picture. But when we adopt a cultural view of marriage, or sin for that matter, it creates a fog in the minds of people watching you and also in the church. So I want to take a loop back to this uh, guy born blind. So 2,000 years after Jesus sets him free, and that word's intentional because not only did he heal him of his blindness, he gave him eternal life. We're still talking about him. I'll tell you, a message would be far easier if I could just stand up and say that, you know, general sin caused, general sin from Adam caused this uh, man to be born blind from birth. Jesus came by, had compassion, healed him. Let's worship and pray and go on with our day. But that's not what the text says. Now read it again if you got in front of you. Chapter 9, verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So what I want to talk about this morning is that marriage of the sovereignty of God and the relationship it has to the abundant life that we'll find in chapter 10. So if we're going to talk about abundant life, why are we camped on this blind man? We're about to build a bridge right now for that. So the whole time that this is going on, the Pharisees are taking it in. They're listening. <clears throat> And as the blind man's sight is getting clearer, the Pharisee's sight is getting dimmer. So turn, uh, let's get back on there. We'll go to chapter um, 9, verse 4. Let's go ahead and read the rest of the chapter here. This is a very humorous chapter, by the way. Not only did Jesus mess with the Pharisees, so does the blind man. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with saliva, then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Well, the neighbors who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He said, Well, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. 
So they brought to the Pharisees a man who'd been formerly blind, and now it was on the Sabbath. Of course it's on the Sabbath, because Jesus messes with Pharisees on the Sabbath. That's what he does. So Jesus made mud and opened the eyes. Then the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, I put mud on my eyes, and I watched, and I see. So some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So he said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they said, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then now does he see? And his parents answered, we know this is our son and he was born blind, but how he sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. And side note, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind to them and said to him, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Okay, that is a burr in the saddle right there. And they reviled him, saying, for you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and, and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard of anyone opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out and he, having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, so I may believe? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see and those who may see become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. There's some amazing studies just in that passage right there. But I want to draw attention just to a couple of them. The first one is verse 24 and 25. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind to him. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Okay, this is his testimony. The testimony of a blind man. You got to remember the blind man had never seen Jesus because he packed his eyes with mud and sent him on his way. He does not have a proper theology, but he relays what is irrefutable. I once was blind and now I see. And is this not the common denominator of our salvation? Walking in blindness, having our eyes opened. And then verse 35 through 38, Jesus having heard that he had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir? That I may believe him. And Jesus said to him, you've seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Okay, the Savior of the world went to find the blind man because he wasn't done at sight. 
He needed eternal life. That's powerful. God sought him out. Savior of the world. I love that. Uh, before we move on, I want to try to paint a little bit clearer picture of what it might have looked like in Jesus' time in relation to the, the Pharisees and their influence. This is just uh, uh, a guess on my part. I wasn't there. But when they, in verse 13, talks about bringing the blind man to the Pharisees, and they had to, in verse 18 later, they pulled in the parents and interrogated them as well. The parents were afraid to speak because they didn't want to get tossed out of the synagogue. And, and I personally, I did some work at Washington State University, I don't know, three or four years ago, I can't remember. But I, I worked for a company that was an international ISO safety certified company from Sweden that earns $150 billion a year. And the scope on the project for my job was $3,000, so it's like a drop in the bucket. But I'll tell you what, that was the darkest place I've ever worked. Um, this is what martial law, martial law must feel like. Um, there was a safety engineer walking by about every 30 minutes, not just by me, by everybody. The second I pulled up in the parking lot, which was probably 200 yards from the job site, I was accosted by a safety engineer for not having the correct gloves on at my truck. <clears throat> I'm not a rebel. I just I couldn't get my mind around it. I have to wear different gloves for my line of work, so it wouldn't work anyway. But every job on that contractor was in a state of paranoia. <laughs> we were all looking around at each other like, when's the hammer going to drop? And you're always in fear that somebody else was going to turn you in for something that you didn't know you were doing wrong. You kind of got the idea that breathing was a violation at some point. Um, it was awful. It was, it was, it was uh, quite an experience. But I imagine, could you imagine what it must be like with Pharisees on the Sabbath? Try to, okay, do I got all these rules down? <laughs> Wait a minute, they made some new ones last week. They didn't tell me about them. What a hard existence. So in chapter 10, Jesus turns full attention to the Pharisees' abuse of their positions. Let's read uh, verses 1 through 15, but we're going to end up camping on verses 9 and 10. So verse 1 here. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, this man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door of the shepherd of the sheep, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name to lead them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger will not follow, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. So this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand it. So Jesus agreed, uh, again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. So Jesus is contrasting himself with the Pharisees, being the good shepherd and the Pharisees being the thieves and robbers. Uh, most commentaries you read will call the thief uh, Satan, but in context, it's the uh, Pharisees. But um, Jesus also at one point, I don't have the verse written down, but Jesus called Satan the father of the Pharisees at one point, and we know they're doing his bidding. 
So by definition, a sheepfold is just a large enclosure or a pen where the shepherds would bring their sheep at night uh, for safety. And you might have several uh, um, herds of sheep blended in the same sheepfold. But by morning, the shepherd would go and call his own, and they know his voice so well they'd follow him out. The shepherd still speaks to us, and first and foremost through his word. We have to know his word to recognize his voice. I know it sounds simplistic, but it is simplistic. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Uh, Psalm 119.105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light to my path. Psalm 119.9, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. Okay, that's a prescriptive verse. Luke 11.28, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So, brothers and sisters, we have to store up God's word. And you may not have an aha moment every time you read scripture, and that's okay, because it does not come back void. We're storing it up. We have to learn the voice of the shepherd. The Greek word that Jesus uses to describe abundant life could be interpreted as superabundant, overflowing, over and above a certain quantity, a quantity so abundant as to be considered more than anyone would expect or anticipate. I think that's a good one right there. In short, he promises life far better than we can ever envision. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work of the sons of disobedience. So, so we know we were dead in our sins in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 2. But later on in verse 4, it says, Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. So now we've gone from death to life. But what about the seemingly elusive abundant life? How do we get that? Short, we get that by learning and following the voice of the Good Shepherd. Jesus contrasted abundant life with doings of the thief. Now, let's break down the thief for a little bit. Although the, tech, the thief is not technically Satan, there's no doubt the Pharisees are doing his bidding, and the thief has a three-play playbook, kill, steal, and destroy. So kill. He would like nothing better than to leave us dead in our trespasses, to hinder us. He tried to hinder Jesus from going to the cross, he tries to hinder us from talking about the cross. As far as stealing, those who find life in Christ, this thief would like nothing more than to steal your joy. Did God really say? Just like in the Garden of Eden, Satan's message to Eve was, did God really say? It hasn't changed today. Did God really say, be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God? Did God really say, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives? Did God really say to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you? I like to look at all prescriptive verses like a dock and a boat. When you stand on the dock and you put one edge up on the, a foot up on the edge of the boat, it always drives down that side of the boat and it starts moving away from the dock. And you begin to do the splits. So do I trust what Jesus tells me or what culture tells me? Can I truly cast my cares on him? You see, the doc's familiar. It's predictable. It's going to look the same tomorrow as it looks today. 
But the boat, on the other hand, that's commitment. There are currents, winds, swells, storms. The boat's an adventure. The third play is to destroy. I think we underestimate the thief somewhat, and I hope to drive home some stuff today that helps to not do that anymore. His desire is eternal death. He wants as many people as possible made in the image of God to scream out in agony in hell for eternity. That's harsh, but that's exactly what he wants. I grew up in St. Mary's, which probably explains a lot to you this morning. But it was fairly common as a kid to get in a fist fight. That's what you did as a kid. And uh, I swear I never started them, but I, I was too stupid to walk away. So, But back then it was like rock'em, sock'em robots. You just went toe-to-toe and you traded punches and finally somebody said, ouch, that's enough, and we we're done. <laughs> Matter of fact, back then you could make an appointment for a fight. Remember that? Meet you at three on Tuesday behind the gym. I can, I got I've got baseball practice after school. Okay, about Thursday. Okay, great. See you there. (laughs) So I I took that experience to Oregon as a freshman in high school, and I got in a fight, and I got beat bad. This kid came at me, feet flying, and tried to stick his finger into my eye right off the bat, and it kind of was like, well, this isn't like it's supposed to be. And uh, tried to gouge up my eyes, pulled my hair out, and I had a few bite marks on my back. And I remember mid-fight saying, you fight like a girl. And as he spit out the chunk of back my, he was chewing on, he said, I fight to win. I've never forgotten that. I, I grew up that day. <laughs> There's a difference between fighting and fighting to win. And I learned it the hard way. Although the thief desires eternal spiritual death, he has to concede life when a lost soul turns to Jesus. Luke tells us when that happens that angels in heaven rejoice. The day that you receive Christ, angels in heaven rejoiced over you. That's beautiful. But the thief is not finished with life. Now begins the battle over abundant life. And let me assure you, he fights to win. There are no rules for engagement. In my opinion, the number one target of the thief is the whole entire family structure. <clears throat> Marriage first, because it's the purest picture of, of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. So it makes sense that would be the first choice. But within that family structure, target number two is your kids. And I call them secondary because he can easily take them out with a strike on the marriage. There are no survivors in divorce. Psalm 124.7 says this. It says, your children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Kids that run hard after Jesus are a threat like none other. Proverbs 22.6, which you're very familiar with, says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. When you read the Proverbs, um, Proverbs are essentially wisdom, okay? They're not the promises of God. Uh, If you read this uh, through wisdom, it would say something like this. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and most likely he will not depart from it, even when he is old. But I'll tell you what Proverbs 22.6 does not say. It does not say, let people who do not follow God train up your child, and hopefully when he is old, he will return. When did it become okay for us to sit our kids in front of the seat of scoffers and expect nothing less than rebellion and depression? I'll tell you, one of the bonuses of voting Democrat this year is free childcare for all. And some of you roll your eyes at the notion of, of, of the free part, but if you are, you're missing the point. The bigger point is right now that the government already has your kid from first grade through college. It would only make sense that the thief would want the rest of the years as well, the formative years. 
When did we move from from thrive to survive when it comes to our kids? Is abundant life not for our kids? Is it not for our teenagers? Well, you don't know my teen. I don't, but I know who does. Jesus knows your teen. And he died to to give him life and abundant life. That shows survivor. I think I'm going to make one called thriver. I didn't say this for service because it's stupid as I'm thinking about it. But on survivor, you just kind of backbite everybody and you get together and form alliances, kick people off islands and win a million bucks. But on Thriver, everybody loves each other. Everyone's building each other up in Christ and you'd never have viewership for that. But that's who we are supposed to be. I also want to take a moment to talk about labels. I kind of touched on it last time I spoke. Um, It's because we often find our identity in, in how others label us or how we label ourselves for that matter. So I prepared a slideshow of some famous individuals who have been labeled with mental disorders and have adapted quite nicely on their particular street. The first one's big diagnosed with ADD. He has a short attention span, it's difficult for him to focus, and he's very fidgety. And that person is Ernie. The second suffers from schizophrenia. He has delusions, hallucinations, imaginary friends, and talks in a strange voice like a child. Big bird. The next one has Asperger's syndrome. He's a loner who prefers solitude, has no sense of humor. He obsesses over objects such as paper clips and pigeons and has anger issues. Who's that? That's Bert. Next one, I'll let you guess. I bet you can guess this one. He has OCD. He's compelled to count everything. It's to count. Okay, lastly, this, this last person does not live on Sesame Street, but he's a complete disaster by all measurable standards. He's narcissistic, suffers from paranoia. He's a megalomaniac, egocentric, schizophrenic. Who do you think that is? He's your savior. In 2011, a team, this is medical journal information right here, so just bear with me. In 2011, a team of psychiatrists, behavioral psychologists, neurologists, neurologists, thank you, Neurophysicists from the Harvard Medical School published research which suggested the development of a new diagnostic category of psychiatric disorders related to religious delusion and hyper-religiosity. That's those of you filled with the Spirit. They compared the thought and behavior of most important figures in the Bible, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Paul, with parents affected by mental disorders related to psychotic spectrums, using different clusters of disorders and diagnostic blah, 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 and concluded these biblical figures may have had psychotic symptoms that contributed inspiration to their revelations, such as schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, manic depression, delusional disorder, delusions of grandeur, auditory visual uh, temporal lobe epilepsy. (laughs) Here's the best one. The authors also suggested that Jesus sought to condemn himself to death, which is suicide by proxy. I've had a couple of days to take this in as I was reading it. You're just hearing it for the first time. So yeah, if your mind's blown, I get it. So the sharpest minds in the world in mental health come up with a diagnosis for your savior. Whatever label you're wearing this morning, it might be okay to pull that off and put that in a drawer somewhere. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So translation, he was sinless and completely truthful. Your Savior's perfect. I have very deep convictions on mental health, and this isn't the place to go super deep on them, but I can tell you this, I know that it's God's desire that we run through the finish line, 
beaten, battered, bruised. It's as hard as we run through until we meet him face to face. If someone has told you that your value is limited or doesn't exist, if someone's told you that you suffer from a disorder that sidelines you for ministry, that you're beyond hope, any of that stuff, you've been lied to. I'm not a big fan of the, the term ADD, but let's just say I am for a second. What if we took the D on the end of it, which is disorder, and turned it to design? Let's try that for a second. What does it sound like? Attention deficit design. And I say that boldly because I don't think God blinks. I don't think he's caught off guard. I don't think he's surprised. He's sovereign. Like the blind man, we are subject to his sovereignty. Until we can put our trust in him, we can't fully enjoy the fullness of his abundant life. We are a hodgepodge here, people. <laughs> are we not? Look around. Okay, it'd be really nice to get us all in rows of our various disorders or... I mean, we're the body of Christ. We're family. Like it or not, this is who we are. His abundant life hinges on my abandoned life. Let's read Philippians 4, 6 through 9. This is a prescriptive verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I know this is harsh, but please don't tell me that you've tried this and it doesn't work. Because this is radical. That's, that's like off the charts radical to do that. I'm not trying to be mean. I just want us to take an honest look at Scripture and make a decision. If we're ready to lean in heavily into God's Word, this is the prescription. I didn't write it. I'm just relaying something that's in your Bible in your lap. Maybe we should take a little break from studying our problems and maybe study our promises. The best counselor is the mighty counselor. Lasting peace is the prince of peace. Study our promises, problems fade. Study our problems, promises fade. This is insane talk, I get that. Even in the church in general, this is not politically correct talk. Older saints, I think we get stuck in the good old days too much when we should be venturing out by faith into great new days. When's the last time you stepped out and did something radical. When's the last time you stepped out and did something that was, didn't make sense to folks around you? Out of your comfort zone, adventure of faith. I remember when Stacey and I were first married, I was 24, she was 20. And I don't know where I found it, but I brought home a homeless guy. And I, I came inside and I said, this is my good friend, whatever his name was. I don't remember. It's been a long time. I said, he's going to live with us. And my 20-year-old bride looked at me and said, I don't think that's a good idea. So I put him back where I found him. It's always a good idea to be on the same page if you take one of these adventures. But today, 32 years later, I'm coaching a soccer team. Coaching a boys' high school soccer team. 
I took it on with very little knowledge of the game and, and even much more disregard for the game. But it was an opportunity to pour Jesus into kids. I got 16 boys on my team. Is that right? 16? 16 boys on my team. Soccer did become easier when I realized it was basketball with your feet. Now I understood it. I get basketball. So, so what's your adventure? What's your adventure of faith in regards to eternity? You don't have one? Let's ask God for one. Earnestly tell him that you want to be used. He has plenty for you to do, and I can prove that in Ephesians 2.10. It says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to break that down just a little bit. We are his workmanship. The Greek word is poema, which is poem. We are his poem, created in Christ for good works. That's our purpose, which God prepared beforehand, which he set up before that even, that we should walk in them. The word should is, is important because we have a choice. A friend of mine posted a version of Footprints. You guys remember the first came out in, I think, the early 80s, Footprints in the Sand. You know, it was, oh, goodness, it was everywhere. And his version was, my child, when you saw one set of footprints in the sand, it was then that I carried you. But when you saw that groove, it was then that I had to drag you for a little bit. <laughs> that was pretty good. And as his workmanship, we have inherited his day planner, have we not? If God has indeed prepared good works for us to do, let's do them. If you don't see any in front of you, pray and then look around in expectation because they're already prepared. We just have to step in and get them done. Keywords, expectation. So we, we know this blind man had two appointments that we know of with God. The first was at birth with blindness. The second was at rebirth with sight. You see, abundant life forces unbelieving world to take pause. Abundant life says, what is it about him or her that's different? Why are they floating upstream in a raging current? Abundant life causes people to want to know your Savior. When you walk in abundant life, you're walking in the Spirit. You're going places that honor Him. You're walking out the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and it's electric. You are the fragrance of life to those who are being saved and the fragrance of death to those who are perishing. But you're a fragrance just the same. Galatians fill up. Can you put that back up, BJ? Uh, Galatians 6. Philippians 4, 6, I'm sorry. Have we actually taken every anxious thought to prayer and supplication? And, and thank God. See, we forget that part of that equation as well. And have you ever gone home? I want you to kind of go home in your mind right now, not physically stay here, but go home in your mind. I want you to go through your house, your car, your computer, your music device, your kid's room, your kid's music. And in your mind, purge everything that isn't true. And, and let me start by saying, if it's fantasy, it isn't true. Yeah, I'm, I'm standing here right now saying fantasy isn't true. Is it honorable? Is it just? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it commendable, excellent, worthy of praise? If not, pile it in the front yard in your mind right now. Some of you probably can't get out your front door right now. <laughs> That's radical. 
Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, in this passage, Paul doesn't tell us, he tells us what to do, but he doesn't tell us how to do it. How to do it is found in Philippians. And we already outlined that. But I'd encourage every believer in this room to memorize that passage of Scripture because it is revolutionary. And I think you'll find that the living, active Word of God is able to transform life into abundant life. It's a radical step, and you're going to be hard-pressed to find people that want to do it, even in this building. But don't wait, because if you wait to find that person, it may not happen. One foot on the dock and one on the boat is going to get you in the water. Let's get on the boat. It's an adventure. And if today, if you don't know Jesus, maybe today is your appointment with life. And if you do know Jesus, maybe today's your appointment with abundant life. I can't force you there. Just tell you about it. It's work of the Holy Spirit. But please take these into consideration. The Lord wants us to have abundant life. That's what he came for. Our teenagers too, our kids. Got to do radical things sometimes, folks. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for everybody here today and... and um, God, help us to look different. Gosh, I just think sometimes we get stuck in the middle of the stream of current, of culture, and just eats us alive. And I pray that at some point, you would just make it so real to us that we are a, a, a we're peculiar people. And, and that's, that's an excellent choice of words. We're like the Adams family of Christianity right here. <laughs> and Lord, by design, um, we love each other. Just, just grateful for everything you do for us, Jesus. In your name, amen.